Hey, we are in week two of Advent. And if you remember in the Advent season, we light the at one candle on the Advent wreath, one each of the four weeks leading up to the Christmas day. And then we light the Christ candle, which is this one right here on Christmas day. So last week was the candle of hope. This week is a candle that represents peace. So I'm gonna light the candle and then we are gonna get started. So hope and peace. In today's teaching text, we are in Matthew chapter 3, and we are reading verses 1 through 12. The Bible says this, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of, one, of the one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the region about Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, Well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, does this message of fire and brimstone make you feel a little uncomfortable this morning? Or maybe just the figure of John the Baptist himself might make you feel uncomfortable. I mean, John looks uncomfortable, right? He's wearing camel hair, and that's probably itchy and scratchy. He's eating locusts, and I don't care how you dice it up or fry it up, take the wings off the locusts and add some salt. I don't care. That doesn't sound good to me. It sounds very unappetizing. And so John is an uncomfortable character in the Bible. And it doesn't seem like John fits the moment. What moment I'm talking about? Well, I'm talking about right now. It's the first Sunday in December. And you think it would be more appropriate for me to talk about the lowing of cattle in the fields and a peaceful Bethlehem night and angels singing glory to God in the highest. And it just seems like an odd scripture and an odd man with an odd message. And it feels out of place. And to that I say precisely. You see, we're celebrating the season of Advent. Advent means coming. And it's during this time of year when we look at the coming of Jesus. You know, even in the scripture we just read, John the Baptist speaking of Jesus says, He is the one who is coming. So, so we look at the first time Jesus came and we prepare our hearts and set our expectations for the second time when he will come again. But here is, the, here is the deal about Jesus' coming. There was no coming of Jesus 
without John the Baptist. Therefore, it is imperative that we look at John the Baptist and the part he plays in Jesus' coming. I mean, he was so important to the coming of Jesus that all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and even John, these are the four eyewitness accounts of the coming of Jesus. And all four tell us that Jesus does not come without John. He is the one the prophet Isaiah foretold, he is the voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And John the Baptist, if it feels like he doesn't fit in today or in today's society or, or in today's preaching, it's because John is a man that stands between the ages. John doesn't seem to fit squarely anywhere. He doesn't fit in the Old Testament squarely. He doesn't fit in the New Testament squarely. As John McKenzie states, John the Baptist has never been fully understood. And after 2,000 years, he still stands there, gaunt and unruly, utterly out of sync with this age or our age or any age. You see, Fleming Rutledge says this about John the Baptist, that John stands at the edge of the universe. He is literally on the precipice of a new day. On the front of our stage here is a, there's a precipice. There's a point if I stand on the edge, if I take one step forward, I am stepping into a new day. And that's where John the Baptist sits in the timeline of salvation. He really is an Old Testament prophet who is standing at the edge of the New Testament and he's looking out on the precipice and he sees the Messiah has come. You see, in the Old Testament, the prophets used to say, hey, there's a Messiah coming in the future. There's a Messiah coming in the future. But John the Baptist says, no, repent because the Messiah is here now. Heaven is here. We are literally, the universe is turning on its hinges. We are at this moment in time where a new day is dawning. And it's in, in the text today, it says that John comes preaching. Before Jesus is preaching, here's this guy named John. And John is preaching. That word preaching could be translated, you could say it super literally and say heralding. John came heralding. And what is a herald? A herald is one who, in, in ancient times, a herald would prepare the way for a king. A herald would often go into towns before a king would arrive. And he would let the people know, hear ye, hear ye, the king is coming. And, and he, he, you need to get ready. A king would prepare people and get them ready for the king. They would prepare the roads and, and prepare the people because the king is coming and the people need to be ready to meet the king. And so John is a preacher. Now, we like preachers who tell us things that, we didn't know before. Or we like preachers who are great orators who inspire us with profound thoughts. And personally, as a preacher, I feel pressured to do that many weeks. I want to say something that wows you. I don't want you to fall asleep while I'm talking. I want you to stay focused and locked in. So I try to come up with something to keep your attention. But this is not the job of a herald. A herald does not come up with some profound speech of their own. A herald is simply one who proclaims what they have been given. They proclaim what they've been told to say. Pierre John Bernard remarks that when a herald appeared, 
People did not ask whether the herald is intelligent or even original, but they would ask, what has taken place? Or what is fixing to happen? In other words, heralds do not come to proclaim some profound thought. They come to proclaim a profound event. Something has happened. And indeed, something has happened. John comes to proclaim the event that heaven has come. And that because heaven has come, this changes everything. Because heaven is here now. Heaven demands a response. And this is what the response is. John comes preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. So what does that, what does that mean? What does it mean to repent? You know, this fall, it was like wedding central around the crossing church. I think I was a part of, or I attended at least five different weddings this fall, maybe six. Um, and a wedding is one of those events in a person's life that changes everything. Like it's an event that after it happens, nothing is the same. And because the event has happened, you now must change. When you get married, it means your life is going to change. You can't be married and still live like you're single. You can't stay out all night with your buddies and never check in with your spouse. You can't do as you please whenever you please. Why? Because the two now are one. You've entered into a covenant with someone. Your life belongs to them, not just your own self anymore. And it is a moment in people's lives that demand a change. You can't live how you used to. Your old life is gone. And that is exactly what it means to repent. Fleming Rutledge says this, the New Testament word for repent is metanoia. It doesn't just mean you're sorry. Some people think repentance is, oh, you just feel bad. You feel guilty. You have remorse and you're sorry. That's not what this word repentance means in the Bible. But repentance means a change of life. It means a reorientation towards a different goal. The goal is the kingdom of God now. It means a whole new way of being. You see, the kingdom of God imposes upon us. When the kingdom and the king are near, they are going to make demands on your life. The king demands that what your life was about previously is no longer about that anymore. Your life is now about the king and his kingdom. Stanley Hauerwas says this, John, John's call to repent is not a prophetic call for those who repent to change the world. Rather, he calls for repentance because the world is being and will be changed by the one whom John knows is to come. So listen, it's, listen to what Howard Ross is saying. He's, saying. he's not saying repent so that the kingdom can come. He's not saying repent so that the world can change. What he's saying is the world has changed. The kingdom has come. And because this, this monumental moment has happened in the world, you must change. You see, this is where we get it wrong in our culture. We think serving Jesus is really about Jesus coming alongside you like he's your lucky rabbit's foot 
Or if you've ever seen a motorcycle that has a sidecar, we think Jesus is like, you're in the driver's seat and Jesus hangs out in the sidecar with you and he just blesses you and, 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 and helps you get all your dreams and your wants and desires as you go on your merry way and he's just riding along with you as your homeboy. But listen, there is an odd man named John the Baptist out in the wilderness wearing camel's hair and eating locusts to remind you this morning that Jesus has not come to give you everything that your heart desires, but Jesus has come to actually transform your desires. He has come as the king. He's not riding in the sidecar. He is leading the procession. And he, the Bible says he's coming back on a white horse, and he wants to know, are you going to get behind him as he's leading the procession and follow him as he brings the kingdom? Jesus does not come alongside you as you go on your merry way. Jesus calls you to get behind him and follow him. He's calling you to repent, to turn around, to make your life about his. It's like you're going one way and then Jesus is walking this other way and he calls you to turn around and follow him on his way. That is what repentance is. Now, as we look at this text, we're going to see what repentance is not. I want to give you a few things that repentance is not. Repentance, number one, repentance is not optional. It's not optional. <laughs> to follow Jesus, repentance is not optional, and it's for everybody. Everybody must change. I don't know if you caught it, but as you read that text, what you see is that John calls everybody to repent. He calls the vilest sinners to confess their sins and to repent. But he also calls the religious people to repent. He calls the Pharisees and the Sadducees to repent. So what would John, it's everybody must change. So what does John have to say to the drug addict on the street who's homeless? What does he say? He says repent. But what does John the Baptist have to say to the person who's in church who's middle class, they've never touched a drug or alcohol in their life, and they think that makes them okay with God. You know what John says to that person? Repent. It's not optional. It's for everybody. Everybody must repent. What does John the Baptist say to the person living in a homosexual lifestyle today? He says, repent, change. What does John the Baptist say to someone living in a heterosexual lifestyle, a guy and a girl who are living together, but they're not married? He says the same thing. He says, repent. Everybody must repent. There are no favorites in the kingdom of God. We don't pick pet sins that we think you have to repent of that, but that's okay. No, everything must change because Jesus is here. You see, John calls out the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And he says, you guys think you're safe. You guys think you don't need to repent because Abraham is your great, 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 great granddaddy. You think you're already, basically, John tells him, you think you're already in the kingdom of God. You think you're okay because of the, your ethnicity and the lineage you were born into. But John says, don't think you're safe just because of your ethnicity. You must repent just like everyone else. Leon Morris says this. He says, thus the Sadducees and Pharisees thought because they could say we have Abraham as our father, that they had an eternal security. But John tells them not to think like that. No place of privilege counts in the face of the demands of an all-holy and all-powerful God. 
For John, it was crystal clear that God looked for more from people than a complacent claim of kinship with Abraham. God, he says, is not interested in family trees which bear no fruit in changed lives. John called the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the nobodies out in the wilderness to repent. All must change because the kingdom demands it. Repentance is for all. Number two, repentance is not just escaping punishment. Jesus looks at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he says, Who warned you to flee from the wrath that is coming? You see, repentance is not just a get out of jail free card. Repentance is not just an escape from punishment. There is a wrath that is coming. And first of all, I think we need to realize that there is a wrath from God that is coming. And you say, well, man, this is fire and brimstone preaching. I say, well, we're talking about John the Baptist today. And John the Baptist was a fire and brimstone preacher. I don't know what to, it's in the Bible. This is who he was. He's preaching fire and brimstone. But, But you see, you have to realize, why does the Bible talk about the wrath of God? I thought God is love. And of course God is love. But you know what? Love will set you on fire. Love is passionate, and God is super passionate. And you need to know God is not just annoyed by, sometimes we think God is like annoyed by sin, or he's mildly irritated by sin. You need to realize something. God is not annoyed or mildly irritated by sin. God literally hates sin, and he's totally opposed to it. Because sin destroys what he calls good. Sin hurts what he loves, and those whom he loves. And the Bible commands us, read it in the Proverbs over and over again, it tells us that we should hate evil and love what is good. You see, the wrath of God is necessary because in his final act of judgment, which John the Baptist is talking, he's talking about the end, he's talking about a final day when God is going to completely obliterate evil. He's going to do away with it. God hates it. He can't wink at sin. He has to do something about it. And so the fiery wrath of God will destroy sin. And you see what John is saying here to the Pharisees and Sadducees. He says, don't just just want to get out of punishment for sin. Don't just want to flee the wrath of God for no reason. But really what you should actually do is, is you need to give up your sin because your sin breaks God's heart. It's not just getting out of the punishment for sin. It's hating sin itself. Sin breaks God's heart and it should break your heart too. Repentance is when you hate what God hates and he hates sin. Here's the third one. Repentance is not simply good works. You see, sometimes we can think repent is just piling up a bunch of good works, do a bunch of good things to try to overshadow or outdo the bad things we've done. But John says fruit should bear repentance or repentance should bear fruit. Repentance is supposed to bear fruit. But when he says repentance bears fruit, he's not talking about a bunch of good works. That word fruit is singular. In the Greek, it's singular. It's not fruits. It's not bare fruits of repentance. It's bare fruit. It's, it's not a bunch of good works, but really it's just one thing. 
It's not multiple things you got to do so you can get yourself right with God. It's really just one thing God is looking for today. And that one thing is a total reorientation of your life. The one thing, the fruit of repentance is a change in direction. So I do this all the time. I, multiple times I get on the wrong side of the interstate. So let's be heading north, but I'm actually on the interstate heading south. I do that a lot. But once you realize you're headed in the wrong direction, you have to look for an exit ramp so you can get back in the right direction. And in the world of repentance, when it comes to repentance, the exit ramp is the ramp of confession. John, uh, the Matthew says that people came to John and they were confessing their sins. Confess is when you just simply acknowledge you have made a mistake. 1 John says, if you say you have no sin, you're calling God a liar. <laughs> so confession is when we, when we say, no, God, you're right. I have sinned. I have done wrong. I have broken your heart by the things I have done. It's when you acknowledge the mistake. You have to agree with God that you've sinned and you've fallen short of his glory. And that's the exit ramp. But you can't just get off the exit ramp. Now you have to you have to have a connection to the next ramp you need to get on. You need an overpass, right? You got to get on the overpass so you can head back on the opposite way. And the overpass is grace. What is grace? A way has been made for you to get your life back on the right track of how God intended it. That's grace. God made a way and his grace is greater than any sin you've ever committed. God's grace is amazing. He's made a way for you to get back on the right direction. But to get back on the right direction, you don't just need an exit ramp and an overpass. You need another ramp. You need an on-ramp. And we will call that the restoration ramp. Now that you're headed back in the right direction, there is restoration. This is a metaphor for repentance. You see, repentance is this change of mind that leads to a change of heart and life. There are two words closely related in the New Testament. One is convert. The other is repent. Convert and repent. And conversion has to do with an outward change, a visible difference that you have turned around. You've turned the car around. Repent means a change of mind. It's an inward revolution that lies at the heart of the outward behavioral change. It is a change. You must change. I must change. We must reorient our lives. And you have to have a change of mind about where you're headed. You might have thought you were headed in the right direction, but now you actually realize you're headed in the wrong direction. And God has given you the gift of repentance to turn around. Thank God for the gift of repentance. What he's looking for is a turnaround. And when you turn around, what's, John says, what's going to happen is you're going to start following the one who was coming. John's message, after he says repent, he then turns our mind and our attention and our focus to the one who was coming. He said, there's one who was coming after me. He said, I'm not even worthy to hold this man's sandals. And I will baptize you with water, but this one is coming and he's mightier and stronger than me. And he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You see, John makes it clear 
that although his baptism of repentance is necessary, it's not the end game. What John baptizes with is water. That's the material that you are immersed, immersed into in John's baptism. But Jesus, the one who is coming, the one he is heralding for, Jesus is stronger than John. Jesus is the mighty one. And the material that he's going to baptize us in is the Holy Spirit. Jesus is going to do much more for people than John could ever do. John's baptism is earthly. Jesus' baptism is from another world. You see, being baptized in the Spirit is such a gift because it brings help from another world. The journey of following Christ, the journey of walking in this dry, the journey of walking in this dry and weary land, you need a source. You need something to get you through it. You need something to help you do it. And we have a source. We have a well. We have a spring. Jesus puts living waters within us, he says in John. And it is a supernatural element that Jesus gives us in our life that we absolutely need. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not some ritualistic or symbolic meaning, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an effective power, the power of God. He gives you a new heart so you can live a new life. He is giving us the literal ability to change and head in the right direction. And he says he's going to baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You see, fire in the Bible serves two purposes. Old Testament prophets talked about fire in two ways. The fire was for purification, and the fire is for judgment. Now, in the book of Malachi, the prophet Malachi talks about the refiner's fire of God. A refiner's fire. It's a, a fire that purifies. Just like silver and gold. We all love silver and gold. It's valuable. It's got value. But the reason silver and gold has value is because the impurities have been taken away. How do they take the impurities away? They have to put it through the fire. And the fire melts away the impurities out of the silver and the gold. You see, when fire comes, nothing is the same. Something that's been set on fire, it's going to be different than what it was before the fire. Fire changes things. So oftentimes in the woods, like especially like in South Georgia and stuff, they have controlled fires or controlled burns. Why? Because on the forest floor, there's often so much dead underbrush and so much dead growth. And it's gotten so thick in there that the underbrush is preventing any new life from popping up. There are seeds of new life under the brush, but they're being suffocated. So a controlled burn clears off all the dead underbrush. And then after the charred ground and the smoke clears in a few weeks, what you'll begin to notice is that there's fresh new green life popping up from the ground. The fire has cleansed away the dead things and the fire has brought new life. And see, this is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is a consuming fire that will consume you and it will begin to burn away all the dead things, all the sin, all the things that God hates. He sends his fire to purify those things out of your life, to make you whole, to make you right. He's making you into his image. And you know what? Fire is painful. It may hurt 
a little bit. But this is how God refines us. It reminds me of the story in C.S. Lewis, uh, one of my favorite, The Voyage of the Don Treader in that book. There's a, there's a boy in that book, and his name is Eustace. And Eustace is a real brat. <laughs> he's a real jerk. He's selfish. He's greedy. He's just a spoiled little brat. Well, in, in the story, in The Voyage of the Don Treader, Eustace what he is on the inside eventually comes to the outside and Eustace becomes a dragon. He wakes up one day and he realizes that he's a dragon. And it takes him a little while to realize it, but when he realizes that he's a dragon, uh, he hates it. He, he sees what he's become. The monster he was on the inside has now manifested on the outside. And he sees what he becomes and, and eventually Eustace becomes shamed. He becomes remorseful. He doesn't like the dragon that he's become. And he wants to take off the dragon skin. He wants to take off the dragon scales. But here's what Eustace finds. As much as he tries to shed it, his skin like a snake or a lizard would, he is unable to remove the dragon skin. He is unable, unable to transform himself into what he wants to be. And it is Aslan the lion the Christ figure who must help Eustace get rid of the dragon. And Eustace allows the lion to pierce him. This is the lion. The lion, Aslan, puts his claws into Eustace. And he digs deeper into Eustace than Eustace was ever willing to dig into himself to get those scales off. And this is what he says in the book. Eustace says, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And then when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt in my life, Eustace says. But by the time the lion is done with Eustace, Eustace is rid of the dragon scales and he's a brand new boy and he's not like who he was before. He has gone through the fire. He has gone through the sanctification. Listen, the Holy Spirit wants to sanctify you. The Holy Spirit wants to change you. But you know what? It might hurt a little bit. He might have to go deep. He's going to have to do some things inside of you. But it's worth it. T.S. Eliot, in his poem, Little Giddings, he talks about the fire. I want to read this one little stanza. He says, the dove descending breaks the air with flame of incandescent terror of which the tongues declare the one discharge from sin and error. The only hope or else despair lies in the choice of pyre of pyre to be redeemed from fire by fire. You see, there is a fire coming. Listen to me. There's a fire coming. John the Baptist said, Jesus has a winnowing fork in his hand and he's dividing the wheat from the chaff and he's going to burn up the chaff. There's a day coming. There's a judgment day coming where Jesus divides between those who are his and those who are not his. And there is a fire coming for you one way or another. You can either allow the Holy Spirit to purify you with his fire or you can face the fires of judgment one day, the fires of hell. 
That's what John the Baptist is talking about. That's what T.S. Eliot is saying. We are redeemed from fire by fire. It's the fire of the Holy Spirit that cleanses and purifies us. It makes us right. We can't make ourselves right. We're like Eustace. We're, we, we, we see things about us we don't like. We recognize we don't like it. And we're trying to get rid of this stuff out of our life. But we can't do it. And you can't do it. But he can do it. He can save you. He can change you. And so today, we prepare for the coming of Jesus by yielding to the Holy Spirit, the one who gives us a new heart and new desires. We, we repent, we change, we turn, we say our life must change. We must reorient how we live our lives and allow the Holy Spirit to cleanse us with his fire. Father, I pray for those who are watching today. Lord, I pray that we would truly repent because the kingdom of heaven is here. And because it's here, because the world has been changed, we must change. We cannot stay the same. It's not optional. We all must change. But God, we know change is not possible on our own. We know we need the Holy Spirit's help. We need the fire of the Holy Ghost to cleanse us, free us from ourselves, just like Eustace needed Aslan. We're calling on you today, Holy Spirit, to come and to change us. Baptize us afresh with the Holy Spirit and fire as we prepare for your coming. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey church, we hope to see you live this week.